John 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you now going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. From time to time throughout the gospel, John gives a little extra detail to set the scene. Often he relates the timeline of Jesus' ministry to the feasts of the Jewish calendar. Chapters 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, and now 10 all use feasts to give us an indication of chronology and of setting. Most recently, they've marked the increasingly tense run-ins between Jesus and the religious rulers. Far from being inconsequential, though, the details of each of these feasts have provided subtle insights into ways that Christ is fulfilling all of God's covenant promises. This is the penultimate feast in John's gospel. It's really only the resurrection of Lazarus, which stands between this moment and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the final Passover, and his passion. Perhaps that's why John does a little extra scene setting in verses 22 and 23. The teaching that Jesus will do in this exchange is kind of a culminating summary of what he's already said before to these Jews. We will get to it, but its familiarity gives us an opportunity to spend a little extra time thinking about the setting. This exchange happens during the Feast of Dedication, a winter feast, which gives Jesus good reason to be in Solomon's portico. There, at least, he's somewhat protected from the elements of winter. The Feast of Dedication is not one you'll find in the Old Testament. It's not one prescribed by God. Yet, along with Passover, it's probably the most familiar Jewish holiday to us, Hanukkah. Not quite 200 years earlier, in 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrian army conquered Jerusalem. And he was an evil man who purposefully brought unclean things and activities into the temple. He defiled it in every way he could think of. And it took seven years 
But eventually a group of Jewish rebels kicked the Syrians out and reclaimed the temple in the Maccabean revolt. The Jews then re-consecrated the temple, dedicating it back to God. Hanukkah is the celebration of those events. Today, what's emphasized is the military victory of Judas Maccabeus. But at the time, it was more importantly a celebration of the reclaiming, the rededicating of the temple. While some Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication, most would keep the eight-day feast from home. The ritual lighting of candles celebrated and honored God and his revelation through the temple. His word and his presence in the temple and in temple worship were a light to his people. And the eight candles commemorated his miraculous provision of oil for the temple lamps during its rededication. That's why Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Because even through the darkness of Antiochus Epiphanes and the defiling of the temple, God's light still perseveres. As Christians, we don't need to celebrate Hanukkah because the incarnation we celebrate is the even greater fulfillment of that idea. Surely this theme was Tolkien's influence for the gift Lady Galadriel gives Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. When she says, may it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. That is this idea that God's revelation represented in his word and his presence in his temple will always shine for his people. God never leaves his people without his light because he never leaves his people without his spirit. The spirit of Christ, his perfect self-revelation. It may seem at times that it's not enough light, that the darkness is too overwhelming. But remember, this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God's presence with us is secure because he took on flesh to dwell among us. The Syrian conquest of Jerusalem was political darkness for the Jews. The desecration of the temple was even greater spiritual and religious darkness. Everything that was sacred to them was defiled. And many would look at these events and conclude that God had utterly turned his back on his people. But the temple was reclaimed and reconsecrated, sanctified. And the light from God to his people shone through with supernatural power in miraculous and unexpected ways. In the incarnation, Jesus, the light of the world, the light that is the life of men, shone the light of God with supernatural power in a miraculous, unexpected way. By the Spirit of Christ, he still does this for his people. In the darkness that persists in this fallen world and casts a shadow on all our days, And it may seem at times that it's not enough light. It may seem that the darkness is too overwhelming. But remember, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John says that Jesus is now teaching from Solomon's portico. It's called that because it's believed to be the only remaining portion from Solomon's original temple. Remember, this temple that Jesus is in is the second temple, rebuilt after the first was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And apparently this one portico had survived, 
and was integrated back into the rebuilt temple and therefore was called Solomon's portico. For Jesus to stand here and proclaim himself as the Christ, the significance flows in both directions of time. He who would replace the temple, raising up in three days what God's enemies had sought to destroy forever, He is nonetheless in an unbroken line with God's original temple. The forms would change throughout history from a tabernacle to one temple to the next, but all of it points forward to God's real presence with his people, to Christ, Emmanuel, and the spirit of Christ he would send that dwells with believers by faith. Temples can be destroyed They can be defiled by sin and sinners. They can be taken away from the faithful. But the presence of God is never out of reach for God's people. Jesus, the supreme revelation of God, provides us with a superior temple. And though the evil one and the ones who do his bidding may wage war against the Christian and against the church of Christ, our access to God is secure. Because he dwells with us by the Spirit. There's also a foreshadowing, a forward-looking significance to Jesus' pronouncement on the portico, at least from the timeline of the story. John's gospel was written last, somewhere between 64 and 69 AD. So John now has had the benefit of seeing history play out. And it's recorded in Acts 3 and 5 that Those who saw the resurrection lived to see the first believers gather on this very portico to proclaim the risen Christ. Not long from this moment where Jesus is speaking, faithful followers would join their Savior spiritually in proclaiming from this exact spot that Christ is the Savior of the world. When people take up stones with which to kill you, It would be natural to have second thoughts about your beliefs. But Jesus' followers in those moments will not be afraid. Their security will be in the truth of God's testimony to their hearts. And the words that Jesus says here, which are true, he and the Father are one. Kids, hopefully you won't be faced with a situation where you have to choose between denying the faith or being killed for believing it. But you will face many situations in life where professing faith in Jesus costs you something. People will threaten to mock or ridicule you. They'll try to make you a social outcast, a loser. They'll say that you can't pursue certain careers because you believe ridiculous things. Later in life, standing firm in the face, faith could cost you a job or a promotion or the opportunity to serve in the culture or on a board of some company. That's why you can't go through life unsure about what you believe. No one is willing to suffer any of these potential consequences for their parents' faith. No one remains faithful to God in a difficult time, in a time of significant pain because of what other people believe. The only way to be secure in times of great trial is to be secure in your faith, convinced that what Jesus says is true. As adults, we see this often in our personal battle against sin. 
putting sin to death in our lives, becoming more like Christ, putting off the old self and walking in the new. These are not easy things to do. They're hard. And there's no security in believing that we have to do this in our own power. That makes us insecure. It proves to us that we cannot grow. And so we eventually become convinced that we won't. Security is found only in Christ's power to change us. In the confidence that the good shepherd goes out before his sheep and teaches us to hear and recognize and follow his voice. When we feel hopelessly enslaved to our sins, it's only the security of faith that gives us hope. The certainty that God can and will break each and every attachment we have to sin. Our holiness is secured by his identity. An identity in which Jesus was so confident that he did not fear when the stones were picked up against him. He knew his time had not yet come. The earliest disciples, not long from now, will gather on this same portico. And they have been made secure in the truth of these words by the resurrection. Secure enough to lay down their lives in order to proclaim the glory of his. And we can be just as secure. As I said, there's a lot going on just in the setting of this encounter. But let's turn briefly just to the story. It's a classic example of be careful what you ask for. The Jews say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We roll our eyes at this. Everything Jesus has said and done testifies to his identity. The claims that John made in the prologue of this gospel have been clearly validated and reiterated for the last 10 chapters. How long will you keep us in suspense? As one of my mentors likes to say, there are no stupid questions, only stupid people. There's certainly an element of spiritual blindness here. Jesus covered this ground already with these very crowds. They don't hear what he's saying because they don't believe what he's saying. Their intellect, their mental, their lack of mental understanding begins with their lack of spiritual understanding. One of the reformers said, this is always the case with unbelievers. They choose to remain in doubt rather than be founded on the certainty of God's word. We see many who voluntarily shut their eyes and spread the clouds of doubt in order to darken the clear light of the gospel. Jesus' identity is clear to those who seek to understand him by faith, but without faith, he remains a mystery, even an offense as to these men. And additionally, Jesus has been careful not to use the words Messiah or Christ of himself with these people. And that's not to cause confusion, but to avoid it. Those terms now had mostly political and military connotations for the Jews. Someone who claimed to be the Christ would be expected to lead the people in rebellion against the Roman government. Jesus wanted no part in that. So these Jews are not asking him to clarify his identity so that they'll have a good reason to follow him. What they wanted was an excuse to arrest and kill him. If Jesus would just come out and say 
that he was Israel's Messiah, the Christ. They'd have all the evidence they need. What Jesus says in response doesn't add anything theologically to his previous answers, but it does kind of tie them all together from the last several chapters. And a big part of that, honestly, is bringing together two doctrines that are notoriously difficult to reconcile. Human freedom and divine sovereignty. Unbelief is the responsibility of the individual. Each person is accountable to God for their unbelief. And God predestined some to regeneration, repentance, and life. Jesus had been given by the Father specific sheep, sheep that he knows, sheep that will know his voice, sheep that are eternally secure because of his love and nothing else. These Jews are in willing rebellion against God and his Messiah. They are doing what they want to do. And they cannot believe because they are not his sheep. One of the most brilliant New Testament scholars of the 20th century concluded this. It is not possible for us to harmonize these two lines which run in parallel. They run in parallel in scripture and sometimes as here in one verse, human responsibility on one hand and divine predestination on the other. Yet to deny either is foolish. He acknowledges that we do get two clarifying insights on the subject. They help a little. One is God is not obligated to save those who have brought destruction upon themselves. You see in Jesus' interaction here, inability to believe and ill will go hand in hand. And second, the basis of man's salvation rests in God forever. For everyone who is ever saved. The Jews have ignored, twisted, and disputed everything that Jesus has said and done to reveal God the Father to them. They are entirely responsible for their rebellion and unbelief. They do not want to believe, even here, as he very plainly tells them who he is. And since they will not believe his word, Jesus appeals to his works. After all, everything he has been doing is a cooperative effort with the Father to show the world God's power and love for his people. This is actually beautifully helpful for us because in verses 28 through 30, what Jesus does is indicate that the salvation of believers, our salvation, is grounded in the relationship he has with his Father. The elect are the Father's people, first and he gave them to the son so that now we belong to both and by the gift of the spirit the entire trinity is at work in our salvation true believers can never be lost because what thing what person what entity could ever overwhelm god and take his people from him now there is nothing that can separate us from the love of god in christ We are the objects of the kind of special love that has existed eternally within the Trinity. That's what makes our hope secure. Jesus and the Father are one in substance and in action. He and the Father together stand behind the promise of salvation. 
And the promise is secure because no one could ever thwart their saving purposes. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, this is the answer. You look upwards. Paul tells the Colossians, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life may not always feel safe, but you are secure because there is no more certain place in all the universe than within the saving love of the triune God. The Jews wanted an unambiguous statement from Jesus. So he unloads this masterpiece of self-expression on them. Should be careful what they wish for. And to their credit, they get the message. So they take up stones with which to murder him. This time, rather than retreat, he confronts them with a powerful question in verse 32. Which of my works deserve this? He says that his works are of the Father. The Greek word here has the connotation of beauty. Which of my beautiful works? Was it making wine of water at Cana? Or healing the official's dying son? Perhaps it was that time he made the lame man walk. Or when he fed the 5,000. Or healed the man born blind. Or the next one. Raising Lazarus from the grave. These signs that point to the love and power of God for us in Christ Which of these beautiful works deserves death? Which of these works deserves unbelief? They, of course, reject the argument. They're not stoning him for his works, they say. They're stoning him for what he has said. Verse 33, the Jews answer him and listen very closely to their answer. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you... Being a man, make yourself God. Do you see the tragic irony? In their blindness, they've missed the very glory of the incarnation. Jesus is not a man making himself God. He is God who made himself a man in order to save men. We're not secure because men built a ladder up to heaven and made a way up to God. We're secure because God took on human flesh and came down to dwell among us. Jesus offers up another argument in 31 through 39. I don't have time to cover that one at length this morning, but the summary is just that since Scripture itself uses the word God's, lowercase g, in a non-blasphemous way, then Jesus' mere use of the term can't automatically be blasphemy. This isn't an argument where Jesus is trying to prove his divinity. It's just a quick attempt to point out that the case they've made against him doesn't even stand under their own terms. But I would like to point out the tenderness of the appeal in verses 37 and 38. 
even as he is rebuking them in their unbelief and deconstructing their case? Do you see the tender appeal for faith? I read 37 and 38 and hope that at least someone in this crowd turned to him in faith. Even as they're seeking to take his life, he's so secure in the love of the Father, he's still calling out to his sheep and asking them to hear and respond to his voice. After all this, Jesus goes back across the Jordan. And again, John uses setting to communicate important truths. He writes that Jesus went to the place where John was baptizing at first. And you just get this little vignette at the very end about the ministry of John. John came to prepare the ministry of Christ. John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. But to a casual reader or worldly observer, it may seem like he has failed. He's dead now. Jesus is about to be. The disciples will be scattered. This doesn't look good. What has John's faithfulness gotten him? But here we see the answer to that question. In the ancient Jewish world, signs, miracles, were really important for validation. Anyone can say that they're great of God and to be believed, but it was by miracles that people tended to accept those claims as true. John didn't do any miracles. All he did was speak the truth about the identity of Jesus. And here we get a quick postscript into the ministry of John, like those words that scroll at the end of a movie to tell you what happened to all the characters. John's ministry was an incredible success. It says many believed. And this is significant in John that it says many believed not because of signs. That's a rarity in this gospel. Most of the times that we're hearing that many believed, believed is in scare quotes because it says they're believing the miracles and not in the sign, the thing that they point to. They believed because everything John said about Jesus was true. Their security was in the truth of God's revelation through John. You know, the Roman Catholic Church bestows sainthood only on someone who, in addition to having a reputation for holiness, has also performed a miracle. John wouldn't make the cut. He performed no miracle. He was secure in a sainthood that is bestowed by God and not by man because he focused his life on speaking the truth about Christ. When Nathan was a little boy, and we only had one kid, all of my obsessive parental tendencies were fixated on him. Must have been exhausting. Parking lots were my nightmare scenario. I'd look around, and all I'd see are careless and murderous drivers in all directions. For me, the most unsafe feeling in the world is a small child in a parking lot. But he'd reach up to grab my hand, And he'd feel like he was safe because he was holding on to me. But I knew that's not secure. He could let go and run off and chase something at any moment. So I thought he was safe. I felt 
secure, not because he was holding on to me, but because the security of my grip on him. But that's not real safety either, is it? I fail myself. I suffer the effects of other people's sins. I choose poorly at times. I act selfishly. I run from what's good for me. I refuse to change. No, whatever security exists in this world is not because of the things we do or control that we think protects our lives and our loved ones. Real security exists only because of the power and love of God for us in Christ. The goodness of God is what makes us secure. And it does not always feel safe. But nothing is more secure. Our future in the power and goodness of God for us in Christ is the only thing that will never fail us, will never change, and can never be taken away. We are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us.